This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to another edition of America Changed Forever. I'm still thinking about what I covered in Buffalo after the shooting there and what happened in Uvalde. Between those two mass shootings, 31 people killed. And so, of course, the discussion continues in Washington. And as you know, if you've been following this program, if you've been listening to this program over the past three weeks, you know that we have been going deep in terms of gun control, just following what's happening in Washington or or what's not happening in Washington. John Easton, Republican strategist, joins us now. We're going to talk about the latest on the negotiations over gun control. John, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. All right. So this is this is a tricky subject, especially, I think, for Republican senators. How much are they willing to give up? What do you think is going to happen here? So on Thursday, uh, the Senate went out until Tuesday. And um, I think that everyone was, well, those involved with the negotiations were hoping for a breakthrough and a, 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 an agreement, meaning the actual text legislative text agreement would be done today, but uh, it's not, uh, which puts a lot of pressure on uh, next week to get it done. And, and um, a lot of people may not know this, but you know, just to get a bill completed on the Senate floor takes at least a week. And if an amendments are involved, um, if, they don't, if they don't cooperate and agree to a tighter uh, timeframe for the floor, then it can take more than a week. So uh, you're right. This is a, a very sensitive uh, bill, and it's uh, and it's running up against a recess. And there's a decent chance that if they are that close, uh, they will go into the recess to get it done. Well, yeah, I'm going to channel the voices of family members of victims. What what you're outlining is this July 4th break that's coming up. The recess, and as we've discussed on this program before, or I've discussed on this program before, members of Congress, they like their vacations. I mean, listen, don't we all like our vacations? But this is one of those issues where, okay, keep working through your vacation. There are times when the American people expect overtime from members of Congress, and I think it's it's fair to say, as I channel the voices of family members of victims in mass shootings across this country over the last several years, you know, you got to get something done. And it, it looks like, okay, they're making progress. They are making progress after Uvalde, after Buffalo. 
a total of 31 people killed in those incidents. John, they're making progress. I guess that's a good sign. You're right. And you make, you make good points about uh, the juxtaposition of a, a horrific tragedy and, and a recess. And I, I, I have never called it a vacation because I know what they do on their, during their recess. They, most of them go home and they'll be in July 4th parades and they'll be speaking to veterans groups and boys and girls clubs. And, and yes, they may, might get a little time with their families, but they are working. Most of them are working hard. But this is, uh, this is, has potential. It, it, this is a real bipartisan effort. And I think that's what is different this time than past efforts to get a gun violence bill through enacted through Congress and, and, and signed. Uh, and I think that, that the hope and the, and the real goal here is obviously they need to get 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a, a, a filibuster but I think if if it gets done and it gets 60, you're going to see it get more than that. You could see it get close to 70. And uh, that's what they're working on. I think that's what Senator Cornyn, who's, who's the lead on, on, this, on this legislation, is trying to get to is let's get as many as possible that can sign on to this. And, and so it's a durable bill, one that is going to last a long time and, and won't be overturned by you know, the next party in the White House. All right. So with all your experience, explain why it would be important to make this as bipartisan as possible if you're a Republican senator. Well, I think that for one thing, let's talk about institutionally. The Senate was built for uh, to be dispassionate. It was, it was built to cool the passions of the House. And with the most emotional and controversial issues, you just have to come to an agreement that both parties have had a hand in. And that's, that's what the Senate is for. I, I really believe that's what the framers had in mind. And that, a lot of people don't like to hear this, but that is, that is a function of the filibuster. Um, it, 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 the filibuster does force you to get to 60 and beyond and 60 votes and, and beyond. And I know that a lot of people say, well, if it was just majority vote, you know, 50 plus one, would that, it, would, it would take care of all of this mess, you know, this graveyard of bills and everything. Yeah. But when you have something like a gun violence bill where the emotions are so high on this, where the second amendment um, comes into, a constitutional right comes into play, you really do have to have both sides coming into an agreement so that it will be protected in the times to come that both sides will say, wait a minute, no, we, we're not undoing that because, you know, we, we had an agreement and it was a good agreement. It's, it's gotta be defensible in the years to come. And I believe that that is what is being worked on. There are a couple snags that they're trying to work through if they can work through those snags, uh, which is one is the, is red flag laws, uh, a, a provision of red flag laws. And then, um, what they call the boyfriend, loophole uh, that that you know they're trying to increase penalties for those uh, abusers that aren't spouses um, that from having guns uh, the way it does for abusers who are married. And they're also uh, trying to improve records available for background checks of younger gun buyers and billions of dollars in funding for mental health services and school safety. But what is not on the table 
is any sort of ban on assault-style weapons, AR-15s, for example. Why is that something that they just won't touch? Given, if you look at the evidence, and you know this is something I've talked about on this show, having covered a lot of mass shootings, in a lot of these cases, the common thread is the kind of weapon used, an AR-15-style weapon. Why is it that they won't touch that? Well, it, it, it all goes, so I'll speak somewhat generally here, but it does go to fear of a national gun registry, the slippery slope theory, um, and then just the basic infringing on constitutional rights of law-abiding citizens. And, and I'm not speaking to the exact weapon here. I know you brought up ARs, which obviously are, you know... Um, deadly, dangerous weapons. Um, and it, it, I, it, I, just, I just believe that, you know, the reason why that this particular framework is, is succeeding is because it does go beyond um, guns itself. Because it's, and it's not just the senators, obviously it's, you know, they're, they're representing their constituents and their feelings about what is important here. And, you know, the, the guns are obviously a huge factor. Firearms, whatever they are, nine millimeters, ARs, knives, whatever, whatever is used, it's it's you know part of you know the many factors. But what about the other things that you can do? You know the you know the bullying at school, the troubled family. I mean, there is a common thread that runs through a lot of these mass shootings and and the background of the mass shooter. And I think that. And I've lived through, you know, one of these debates in 2013, the Manchin-Toomey legislation. I was working for a, a Republican senator who, you know, the, had quite a bit of spotlight on her. And um, we spent a ton of time on this issue. And 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 one of the things that she was trying to do was to to close some of the gaps in in um, mental health um, laws. Which, which Republican Senator was that? Oh, it's, it's Kelly A out of New Hampshire. She's not in the Senate now, but, uh, she was a, she was attorney general of, of New Hampshire and she saw up close and, and, and lived through some of these, uh, situations, you know, w- with mental health and, uh, domestic abuse and, and, and how it related to guns and, and crime. And, I think that what this is trying to do is it's it's trying to include you know a more of a holistic a- approach to um, getting at the problem, and we all know that guns are you know a part of the problem. And but but sometimes I believe, and I and I want to say this does come from the Democratic end is there's sort of like this panacea of well, if we just get gun control, if we just you know get these guns off the street, that um, you know these wouldn't happen again, or at least they, they wouldn't happen nearly as much, let's, let's say. But um, if you look at, at these mass shooters, you know, the kind of problems that, that they are having, um, you know, like I said, there's a common thread there and, and, and we need to really get to the root of the problem, not just the, you know, the weapon that, that is, was the final act, but what, what led this person to, you know, be suicidal because mass shooters are almost always actively suicidal. So there's, it's very, very complicated. Obviously, you know, you have education, mental health, uh, so many factors involved with this. And, and I do believe that, like you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of money that's going toward crisis intervention, mental health services, 
all of that is hugely important and and we need to go even further into the root causes of what is disturbing these young men and and what is taking them to such a terrible place but john listen if, if we were to have a debate about this issue here i am as you know traveling in europe right now and when I turn on the news here, and, and yeah, I've been watching a lot of news here, but when I turn on the news, I don't see shootings on every corner. Uh, I don't see shootings leading the newscast. And I'm sure if I did a little digging and looked at the numbers, um, you know, per capita, the, the number of shootings in these European countries, for example, uh, pale in comparison to what we experience on a daily, yearly basis in the United States of America. And I think it was one senator who said, and I forget who it was, you know, every country on earth has people with mental health issues. But what they don't see is the rate of gun violence that we see in our country. That's that, that's probably true. And, and, and every country clearly has a different has its different culture, and we have a an extremely open society. Uh, we have a, a Hollywood, for example, uh, is is very dominant in our in our culture. We be, we're becoming more and more secular as a country, less uh, faith based or religious. And I mean, there there are just I mean, you can dig in and go into the layers. You know, I, I'm not even arguing with your your point about um, shootings and and the uh, frequency of shootings in other countries, but. You know, we do have this the Second Amendment uh, we've had from the from the get go, and 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 if you're asking why is is this so difficult, I mean, look no further than that constitutional right and and its role in our in our culture. That is uh, certainly with the Republican caucus, and they are reflecting their their constituents, their states, and it that is why it's it can be extremely difficult just to start infringing on that right. You know. Whether there's a good rationale for it or not, it's still a constitutional right, and that is a that is a very difficult thing to broach uh, when you're when you're talking about um, you know lessening that that right in any way. It's it takes courage, it takes courage, and it takes leadership to broach that kind of subject. I don't think I've talked to anybody on either side of the aisle who says. Take every gun away. I'm sure you know there are some Republicans out there. I think who think that every Democrat out there or everyone who's advocating gun control is take is saying, "Hey, take all the guns away." I don't think anybody in the United States of America think that that is something that realistically is ever going to happen, and nor should it happen given what our Constitution says. But I think it's fair to say that most people on both sides of this issue want our kids especially to be safe. I mean, you're impinging on somebody's freedom if they, if they feel like their life is in danger every time they go outside of their house and even in their homes because of gun violence in this country. Um, so it, it's one of those emotional issues where you can see why family members of victims are just so tired of the promises and the uh, thoughts and prayers and, you know, promises to change the laws and the laws never change. Yep. You know, I, I think that uh, that is true, but I, I think that 
we also need to look um, right in front of us uh, in our in our own communities. And there was just a really great piece that I that I wrote that I didn't write a that I read from a uh, Sandy a mom of a Sandy Hook uh, victim. So you can just imagine, and she she's become extremely active about um, solutions in 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 schools and in communities, uh, teaching you know how we can affect children um, on a day to day basis in schools at the family level. And her point was, look, we've got to we got to do it ourselves. You know, it's fine if you and and she was asked about, oh, would do you support you know President Biden's. Um, proposals uh you know what about you know congress doing something do you think this is a, you know urgent she goes sure sure that's that's great if they can do that that's great but she felt that the the larger objective here should be what we can do ourselves each and every one of us to get to those people that are 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 heading down that dis, that that terrible path uh where they would actually harm others and then of course harm themselves it, you know, it was it was a very powerful piece, and I'm not even suggesting that all the Sandy Hook parents of victims agree with her or disagree with her at all. This is just one woman's opinion, but it struck a chord with me, and I and I think that's right. You know, those of us that are parents, you know, that are involved with our kids and their schools, and I was just talking to my brother, uh, who is a high school teacher. We had a great conversation about you know how do we better involve educators in looking for those signs. You know, they're they're sort of at the at the point of the spear there. And and how do we engage them? Or I mean, talk, I don't even talk about arming them. I'm talking about you know how can they be more eyes and ears to really capture somebody to to get somebody the help they need quickly, um, and and so that we can head them off of this terrible path that 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 some are are, are going down. And and yes, you know it, it, the fact that they have uh, easy access to an AR uh, 15 is 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 troublesome too, but. I, I do believe there are, are, are it, it all matters. It all matters very, very much. And, you know, if, if, if Congress is able to tighten up, um, you know, loopholes in the background checks, great. You know, I, I think they should do it all. And, um, and, and I, and I just think the, the, the framework that the bipartisan framework, if they can get this done, it really is something that they've not been able to do in what, 30 years. And it's a good start. And I think we should, you know, make that start and and keep going from there. All right. So what is your prediction as these negotiations head into another week? I think they want to get this done. And if I can speak politically here, I, I think that if uh, these senators know that if this is not done and they go into a recess and, and the politics of, of, at home with all the different interest groups start getting a hold and, and screaming and yelling about what they don't like about this, about this compromise and, and, and more time from Buffalo and Uvalde, you know, transpires, then I think that this doesn't have a very good chance. I think that the negotiators, these 20, I think they know that. I think they need, they know they need to get this bill done and inked before they head out of town. And I, I could not agree with that more. And I would say I'm I am optimistic that they're gonna they're, they're gonna do it. I like the the senators that are involved. I like that that Senator Cornyn 
is leading it because he's got the credibility. He's a longtime member of the Judiciary Committee. His constituents were the victims in Uvalde. He has a track record on these types of issues like Fix Nicks, the, the National Instant Background Check uh, legislation. That was his, um, the one that, that updated it and made it and improved it. And he's got a lot of internal credibility uh, with, with Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. So he's the right guy to, to lead this. And, and I, but I like a lot of the other members that are involved too, very sincere, um, really motivated to work this out and to, um, get a bill that I think every, not everybody, but that the vast majority of the Senate up upwards of 70 senators can support. And I, 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 my prediction is, uh, by this time next week, I think that we may be seeing, um, the light at the end of the tunnel. John Easton, Republican strategist. Thanks for your time. Great to be here, Jeff. Thank you. As you know, we've put a lot of focus on ACF, on gun safety, and these ongoing negotiations. And I think because we have, you know, we're getting interviews that you won't hear anywhere else, especially with the next one that you're about to hear. On Thursday, the Senate called a halt to their negotiations over proposed gun safety legislation. They broke off the talks. And while they are taking a four-day hiatus, people from all over the country, Republicans and Democrats, are participating in a new grassroots effort called 24-7, the People's Filibuster. Again, this is something that you won't hear anywhere else right now, but listen to what they have to say. John Bridgeland, a Republican who served as the former director of the Domestic Policy Council under George W. Bush, is co-founder of 24-7. The 24-7 is a, a, a people's filibuster. It's a national platform for Americans across political party and sectors to express their views on the need for gun safety during this critical time when Congress is considering the enactment of major reforms to keep Americans safe while preserving individual liberty. Alan Casey, a Democrat and former CEO of City Year, a national service program of AmeriCorps, is also a co-founder of 24-7. The reason uh, we're launching this now is that uh, you know, there's been 30 years, nothing's been done. And 85% of the American people agree on a whole set of important gun safety laws that we'd like to see enacted. The House has passed a, a strong bill. The Senate now has a framework, and now it's in negotiations. And we want to make sure that the people are part of those negotiations, that it's not just backroom conversation. And so this is a platform for any American who wants to weigh in on what Congress is doing now with their views to submit a video through our website, 24-7.us, to share their views. The two co-founders discuss why they believe that it's important for all Americans to urge their senators and representatives to enact gun safety legislation. I think a breakthrough is comprehensive reform, uh, red flag laws. They're good evidence to show studies out of California and elsewhere that they've actually prevented mass shootings. So making sure there's the authority to keep guns out of the hands of potentially dangerous people. Second, background checks. 80% uh, plus of the American people support background checks for gun owners. Uh, and uh, that's got to be central to reform. Also support for uh, raising the age. You can buy a, an assault rifle uh, at the age of 18 in America, and yet you can't buy a handgun until you're 21. That's illogical. 
And so raising the age for uh, buying all guns to 21 years of age is essential. And then mental health supports, school safety supports, a whole suite of supports that can protect uh, the places where Americans gather. You know, we have to get the Congress to listen to the American people. And that's why we're setting up this platform. We want to make it possible for the overwhelming majority to actually share their views directly with members of Congress, not by just sending an email or lobbying a phone call, but by bearing witness, by recording a video, by sharing their stories and why this is so important. This violence is now the number one killer of our children and teens. Number one, gun violence, killer of our kids. That has to stop. And there are things that can be done. This is not like, uh, you know, finding a cure for AIDS or for cancer. We know what needs to be done. And so I think it's because we just haven't been able to to break through. And part of the goal of 24-7 is to get the American people in overwhelming numbers to make it clear to our lawmakers that it's time to act. There's been an emergence since these horrific shootings in recent years of March for Our Lives, Moms Demand Action, Brady, Gifford, every town, on and on, these organizations that have seen this gap and have realized that in a democracy, you need big citizenship. You need the American people to emerge and make their views clear to the members of Congress. And that's also why the people's filibuster is so critical to continue to express the views of the American people so that as as politicians are moving on to other issues, uh, this is front and center uh, in their minds. And I would add, uh, we are honored that all of those major gun safety groups and, and many others uh, around the country have joined our coalition. Our, our goal is to amplify their incredible work and their heroic leadership literally for decades and try to put wind in their sails is what they're trying to accomplish. The time is now. These horrible shootings, Buffalo, Laguna Park, Uvalde, you know, going back, Tree of Life, AME Church in, in South Carolina, uh, uh, Parkland, Pulse, you can go on and on. But I do think we're at this tipping point moment. And if the American people weigh in through this 24-7.us platform, I really believe we can can make this happen. And it'll be a big uh, win for all of us. Um, And most importantly, for our children, our families, our neighborhoods. Yeah, I can't stress enough that parents are afraid to send their kids to schools. Americans are afraid to go into movie theaters. Employees are scared to go in the workplace. I mean, that's an unacceptable America. And as March for Our Lives did 400 rallies around the United States, the reason they and other groups are joining with the people's filibuster is they recognize the march has to continue and it has to be brought to Capitol Hill. Among the first people to testify on the 24-7 platform were Richard Small, a Republican, and Gerardo Marquez, a Democrat who traveled from their hometowns near Uvalde, Texas, to make their voices heard. Both Small and Marquez are multiple gun owners and former educators who had coached teams that played in Uvalde. Just before they gave their testimony on the 24-7 platform, they talked about how and why they are offering their testimony. Richard Small, I'm a retired teacher, 37 years, history teacher, uh, also coached uh, now living out there in Charlotte, which is about 45 minutes from Uvalde, and we know that area real well. Eduardo Marquez, I'm from San Antonio, Texas, about probably 50 minutes from Uvalde, uh, Texas. I'm a retired educator. 
being from Texas, our culture is uh, gun ownership. You try to give your son or daughter a gun when they're about 12, 14 years old, but we're talking about hunting uh, guns, not AR guns. I'm, I actually am still an NRA member, but I've made that decision. I'm not going to renew. But uh, I have guns uh, as hunting uh, in my teenage years, and uh, I've been in the NRA probably since my 20s. And uh, my kids all know how to, they're proficient. You know, we used to do skeet shooting together and all. My wife has a concealed license like I do, and so does Jerry Marquez. He has a concealed license. So guns have, have been a part of my life quite a few years. My dad always had a 38 Smith & Wesson for protection at home and a 22 uh, bolt-action rifle. So we were exposed to that as uh, young kids. Uh, but he always uh, put it away and uh, secured the gun. I got uh, introduced to guns later as an adult, and then I bought a bunch of guns, uh, rifles and stuff, hunting rifles. Not that this is important, but I've been a Democrat. I've always been a Democrat, and I know we have a stance. But I'm also a Texan, and I know the good that guns do, and I'm talking about uh, recreation, hunting, and that type. I waited till my son was 12, 13 years old, and then I started taking him hunting with me. And he's an avid hunter also, avid fisherman. My daughter is proficient shooting uh, uh, rifles, shotguns, and that. So I attend a lot of gun shows, and it, I just cringe when I see ex-students that I know don't need to be at those places or have access to guns. And... At a gun show, at least in Texas, that's the only place I know of gun shows, uh, if you have the money, you can walk up to anybody that's selling their personal gun and you buy it off of them. And I just cringe when I see that type of kid, either uh, a kid in a gang or uh, things like that, to have access to guns like that. They're going to be for no good. When Jerry came back uh, from your, uh, his vacation, my wife uh, talked to him. She, like Richard and her, had gone to Uvalde and personally saw the crosses. I could never bring myself to go to Uvalde, even though I knew I should at least pay my respects as an educator, but I couldn't. Even though we've worked together and we've been best friends for 40-some years, his political views are different than mine. He's a Republican, I'm a Democrat. And not that that matters, but it does matter. You know, he's a NRA guy. I don't like the rhetoric at all. But we both agree on this, that the AR has no business anymore in the hands of uh, 18-year-old, anybody that's not uh, uh, well. There's no reason for it. Well, we got invited with 24-7 to come out here to this filibuster, and I kind of just was like, man, should we go? Should we got to go? And if there's any time to be here in D.C. and to let people hear us, it is now. I think the momentum is there. I think I mean, guys like Richard Small here, again, Republican NRA guy, that he sees the need for uh, this gun control. And again, sensible gun control is what we both agree on. And that he had the will to turn in his AR, I mean, the conviction, I guess, to turn in his AR. That's why we're here, because I think we're at a crossroads where and in Texas, it is the Wild Wild West, though, with weapons, I hate to say it. 
but there's got to be a turning point at some point. And if the Uvalde, I call it a massacre myself, if the Uvalde massacre uh, is that turning point, well, great for the nation, great for our country, great for every school. And that's my point of view is I view it from schools. We are so vulnerable every day. I mean, it's not a prison where you lock everything up and put a big barbed wire fence all the way around. It's a school. It should be welcoming. I think the pull push factor that you're, you know, why are we, why did we all of a sudden come up here? Uh, you know, this, uh, this 24 seven, uh, I think they call it the people's filibuster. Uh, I like it, uh, the agenda because it's nonpartisan and it's kind of like they're, they're, the other day I was looking at some of their, uh, I don't know, their, what they believe in. And uh, I think they can be the median between the two polarized, you know, and I don't want to get political, but, you know, Democrat views, Republican views, extreme, both sides, et cetera. And it, it seems like it's a middle springboard for people like Jerry and myself, and I believe a lot of other people who are, I don't, I don't want to say other people aren't, but, you know, the sensible people who are saying, okay, let's sit down and let's let's try to save lives let's try to save kids lives carl hulse chief washington correspondent for the new york times joins us now and and carl has had he's been doing sort of a play-by-play uh in for those of us who can't tune in for every single minute of these january 6 hearings carl thanks for joining us sure happy to do it so, all right. So, as we end this week, wh- what do you think was the key piece of evidence that the January sixth committee introduced to the public? Is I, I think there there are several. I think they've uh, done pretty well in making their case. I think uh, the Thursday hearing was particularly good at showing that even the president and the people who were pushing. Uh, Vice President Mike Trump to either throw out the electoral vote or turn it back to the states, even they knew that they really didn't have a case. The testimony showed that, uh, you know, John Eastman, the lawyer, uh, he assured one of Vice President Pence's lawyers that, of course, if this ever went to the Supreme Court, they would lose, but uh, they wanted to proceed anyway. I think that was uh, key to the future of this committee and its work to show that, uh, you know, that there was an intent to go ahead with this, even when they knew it was wrong. And there's just been some very, very powerful testimony uh, before the committee. I think that those of us who are on Capitol Hill regularly uh, think the committee's doing a better job maybe than we even anticipated. Oh, you do. You you think that they are presenting an effective case to the American public that that they hope is tuning in to see this? Yeah, I think that's the uh, general perception. I think it's even the perception among Republicans who don't want to talk about it, uh, that the committee's doing pretty well. Now, there's a couple reasons that the committee is uh, proving effective. And I think one of those is that the Republicans uh, are, made a mistake by withdrawing uh, and not participating in these hearings. It's giving the Democrats and Representative Liv, Lynn Cheney, or Cheney, I'm sorry, Liz Cheney, her mother is, is Lynn, uh, a chance to be sort of unimpeded 
in this. They're, you know how congressional hearings usually are. Uh, the other side gets a chance to rebut. The Republicans aren't there. So in a way, the pres- presentation is kind of seamless in terms of what the Democrats and the two Republicans on the panel are presenting. And I think it's making it even seem more convincing. Yeah, and, you know, as, as someone who, um, you know, obviously I'm not watching as closely as you are, and neither are our listeners. Correct. But it, it seems to me that this committee is painting the actions of President former President Trump, through um, the lens that Mike Pence, former Vice President Mike Pence, was was experiencing, how they were treating him, how they were trying to use him to overturn the vote, the kind of pressure that he was under, and also the threats that he, you know, he, he was feeling threatened. The people around him were feeling the pressure, the threats. Mark Short, for example, who who is obviously a, a close uh, aide, chief of staff to our former vice president, Mike Pence. Uh, they've, they've worked together for a long time. And, and Mark Short is some someone clearly that the former vice president trusted. And Short was concerned about how he was being treated and uh, the pressure on him to overturn this election. Yeah, now, I, to the point where he had to alert the Secret Service that the vice president might actually be in danger because uh, after the conversations at the White House, Mark Short realized that uh, President Trump, as his is his want, uh, was liable to lash out at the vice president for not doing his bidding there on the Hill. And that's exactly what happened. And that was also an important part of the hearings this week where they showed that uh, the president uh, knew that there was the disturbance was ongoing at the Capitol. And he did then tweet out uh, his anger at Vice President Pence for not following through and interrupting the electoral vote. And during the hearing, they showed that the uh, the mob kind of took off from that point. And so here's the president, you know, at a time he's actually being encouraged in the White House to, to tone down things, actually took a, a step that was very incendiary. And there was testimony to that. So I think that you know, the way that the uh, that it went with the vice president that day, I think was very damaging to the president and showed that he had knowledge of the violence that was going on and sought to stir it up anyway. And, and you talk about Mark Short. I think really the most effective thing about these hearings so far is that it, it's being told through Republican voices and voices at the White House. Uh you know, Mark Short, uh, the others who testified uh, are Mark Short and the other people in Vice President Pence's office are very, very conservative people, in some ways, much more conservative than even Trump's inner circle. So, you know, they're not eager to go out there and undermine uh, the party or the president, but they think that's what they have to do. It's been very interesting to watch that unfold. Yeah, as someone who was on the West Front lawn, uh, I was covering 
you know, the, the, the real, the start of this at the ellipse, there was the gathering, there was the speak speeches, John Eastman, the lawyer among the speakers. Who wasn't really scheduled to speak that day, but they, Rudy Giuliani dragged him up there. Dragged him up there and they were all getting the crowd all revved up. And so I went from the ellipse to the Capitol and to this day, I still cannot believe what I witnessed, people climbing the walls. And I remember just thinking to myself, I cannot believe that this is actually happening, that I'm actually witnessing this. But I, I say that because I've also thought about that day. Imagine if, and I don't think people think about this enough, frankly, imagine if Mike Pence went along with the plan. Can you imagine what would have happened if he had if he had given in to the pressure, if he didn't have the courage to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to do this. This is illegal. President Trump, the, the, the hearings have established that he knew that it was illegal. Can you imagine, Carl, what would have happened if Mike Pence had gone along with this? There was testimony that it, the election uh, probably would have been fought out in the street. It was going to be this horrible uh, constitutional crisis. Uh, you know, uh, Judge uh, Michael Luddig, who also appeared before the committee and really was disparaging of the argument and said he would have thrown his body in front uh, of the crowd rather than uh, see the uh, Mike Pence try to overturn the election. Uh, that judge is a conservative icon. He it was a uh, highly regarded conservative theorist. Uh, Ted Cruz once described him as like uh, a father figure to him. So to have somebody of that uh, stature uh, weighing in against what the president was trying to do, I think was very persuasive. And it's making it hard for parts of the Republican Party to fight back. Obviously, uh, there's some elements who are just going to say, uh, this is all just a show, don't pay any attention to it. But I think other people, actually, as the committee progresses, are looking at this going, and I'm talking Republicans now, are thinking, wow, this, this actually was pretty bad. So I think that it would have been, obviously, and it's also interesting to see the Democrats uh, be so complimentary of Mike Pence, who, as you say, did resist a lot of pressure and uh, stood against the president here. You know, the Democrats don't have a lot of good usually to say about Mike Pence, very conservative guy when he was in the House, in the White House. He was a leader of the far right conservatives in the House. And uh, so but the Democrats so far have been willing to praise him for this. I don't think they want to make a hero out of him, but they're certain, certainly giving him a lot of credit. No, and, and, you know, if you just look at the facts, they should be giving him a lot of credit because what we have not seen and, you know, I... Uh, you know, the facts are there are a lot of people uh, these days who would rather uh, play to the crowd rather than take a courageous stand on an issue and put go out on a limb and say, no, that's not right. 
It's not right to overturn an election in a democracy when the people have voted and there is no evidence of wrongdoing. That's just not right. That's not a good look. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's nice to see people standing up who have courage to actually do the right thing, which shouldn't be that hard. Yeah, but it was it was tricky for Pence, who I've actually known a long time, and he, uh, you know, he he saw himself, and he still sees himself uh, as having a a political career. Obviously, he's positioning himself right now to be in the mix for uh, the Republican nomination for president in twenty twenty four, and it, it's tough for him to balance these two things. You know, he doesn't want to be too strident against Trump now, although he gave a speech and you know, said the president was wrong, but he still is uh, you know, trying to, to walk this line. I think it's very difficult for him right now. I mean, the hardcore uh, Trump constituency is never going to forgive him for uh, doing what everyone else thinks at this juncture was the right thing, obviously. And, you know, that, that is a very good point. And it's, it's something to watch as we get closer to candidates declaring for uh, president in 2023, um, because obviously the former vice president is someone in the Republican Party who, you know, if you look at some of the things that he said, seems to be positioning himself to run for president. Um, And you have several others who are positioning themselves and trying to uh, curry the favor of the former president, Trump. Uh, as they look ahead to 2024, um, so that that's something that that we should watch. But I also wanted to talk about, you know, the, the evidence of the people who, while they are pushing President Trump, they're they're sort of poking the bear. Hey, do this, do that, telling him what he wants to hear. After January 6th, they're running to him for a pardon. Oh, maybe I should just, you know, just cover my bases and and try and get a pardon, because clearly what we did was was illegal. <laughs> yeah, now that was uh, that was pretty interesting and uh, news uh, to a lot of us that uh, John Eastman had said had said that, and also the uh, earlier on at the previous hearings. Uh, there was indication that some of the House members who may be implicated had also sought pardons. I mean, that is a fairly uh, strong acknowledgement that they at least suspected they might get in trouble for what they were doing. And uh, I think we're going to hear a lot more about that from the committee going forward. And some of them have denied that they ever sought pardons. But, uh, you know, the truth will come out. Yeah, I it, well, I think the committee so far has has backed up what it said. Uh, we will see if they can do that because they, one of those congressmen definitely said that he had not sought one. But uh, I think that that's going to shake out. I, I do think at the time we knew there were a lot of people uh, from all sorts of uh, different areas seeking pardons at the White House. And I I think that if that's the case, it's definitely going to come out. In terms of a legal case, we learned this past week the Department of Justice has been seeking some of the testimony. They want some of the testimony that the January 6th committee has 
gathered. Um, and it's been sort of contentious. Has, has the January 6th committee, are they refusing to turn over that information? I think they're uh, being careful about it. You know, this is always a tension in these congressional investigations is how far can Congress go without disturbing the criminal case? Uh, So I'm kind of not surprised to see that coming up now. I think that the committee is uh, in a position where they're going to be cooperative, but they're not going to be cooperative just yet. I do think that They'll, they'll work this out going forward. But I think so much of what's happened at these hearings has been to establish that there's a criminal case. Uh, Representative Cheney, you know, constantly talks about how things were unconstitutional and illegal. She's trying to point the DOJ to certain actions and activities that she, she thinks uh, shows that the president and others uh, committed crimes. So, And then there was a a little bit of a hiccup where the chairman of the committee uh, said he wasn't sure there'd be a a criminal referral coming out of this. But I think those are things that have to be resolved. But I do think that, generally speaking, there's going to be cooperation between what is essentially a uh, Democratic-led investigation in the House and, of course, a Democratic-led Department of Justice. But Uh, For whatever reason, the people at the uh, committee, I don't know whether they're worried about leaks or the the Department of Justice getting out ahead of them on some things. They they are trying to slow it down a little bit at this point. As someone who covers the Department of Justice or CBS News, Carl, I am bracing myself. I am preparing myself for criminal referrals. I'm preparing myself for the Justice Department to take some sort of action with some, you know, grand jury input on some of these cases. And I think there is already so much pressure on the Attorney General uh, and the Biden administration to take some sort of action. Yeah, I think people want uh, some accountability uh the it will be a huge step though if to to uh let's just say it uh lodge a criminal charge against the president of the united states former president of the united states for basically uh you know attempting to uh, retain power when he lost the election i think that that makes everyone a little nervous we haven't been there before but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it can't happen. And I think there'll be a lot that will go into that. But clearly, clearly, some members of the committee are increasingly convinced that that is what needs to happen. So uh, I think you're right to be bracing for some momentous events over there. Yeah, we, you know, as journalists, we, we in a way, with this issue, because it is so unprecedented in so many ways in American history. But what we're talking about here, and this is why we sort of tiptoe about what to call it. You know, if this happened in any other country, we'd probably call it a coup or they tried to overthrow the government. But, you know, in this country, because we haven't seen it, it is so sensitive 
I don't know. They tried to overthrow the government. Well, his intent was definitely uh, to certainly disrupt the the counting of the electoral ballots and and maybe stall things until they could get uh, their their own electors in place. I, I mean, but I, I do think that we would call this a coup, an attempted coup in other countries. And I, I think that part of the problem that uh, the country's having with this is because it is unprecedented. We just haven't experienced it. And, you know, the 2000 election and Al Gore came in for several mentions at the hearings. It's, if the vice president of the United States had this power to uh, decide who is president and to uh, pick the electors from a state, why didn't Al Gore do it? Because he had the exact chance in, in 2001 after what was truly a contested presidential election that, of course, went all the way to the Supreme Court. So if anyone uh, had the incentive to do it, it was Al Gore. But of course, Al Gore didn't do it, uh, gave a speech later, said, you know, there's some ideals that are bigger than one person. No one in the past thought that the vice president of the United States could stand there at what is basically a ceremony in the House that I've attended multiple times and say, guess what? Uh, we're not going in this direction, no matter what the states say. So I think people to this point are still still grappling with it. Of course, there's a huge part of the country that is never going to accept that anything untoward happened. I still hear people say, oh, people are being held in jail for walking into the Capitol on January 6th. And I think part of what the committee is trying to do showing these videos, that was clearly not just sauntering into the Capitol. So I think we're still wrestling with this as a nation. Well, I, I anybody who says that, and I hear it, and like you, I've heard people say that, I remind them that five police officers died as a result or after what happened that day. Yeah, and others injured. And of course, one of the uh, people involved in the in the attack was also killed. And I think there was uh, some other very serious injuries and deaths. And yeah, this was not, you know, as one house member said, what, you know, a normal tourist visit. I mean, that's, that's just outrageous to say. Yeah. And you're, it is outrageous. It's offensive. And I've talked to some of the uh, family members of some of the officers who've died. It, it is offensive. Uh, and anybody who compares it to social justice summer, well, why don't you prosecute the people who were uh, marching in the streets and, and, you know, setting fires of which they were, you know, they, there were some cases after George Floyd's death. And I witnessed some of those cases. But, and in, in some of those cases, people are being prosecuted. This is different. Those are two different things. Two very different things. We're talking about the capital of the United States. We're talking about the seat of government being attacked and officers there to protect uh, senators and congressmen being injured, dying as a result. So, yeah, anybody who tries to conflate those two, 
It's just, you're not living in reality. Yeah. And it's, you know, the peaceful uh, transfer of power in the United States has always been one of our great calling cards. And we point, you know, at ourselves and say, you know, we know how to do this and other countries can't manage it. And uh, this, this wasn't that. And uh, we're still trying to, I think, through these, this committee, figure out, you know, why that happened, how far the planning for this extended. And I think so far the committee has done pretty well in showing that this was something quite a bit different than this spontaneous protest that just resulted from the rally in the down at the ellipse. How many more days of committee hearings should we expect, Carl? I mean, well, there's uh, a few coming uh, next week, but then there, uh, then they will be breaking. I think some of the big news out of the committee was that the wife of Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, that the committee uh, might be interested in talking to her about her communications with uh, some of the folks who were. Uh, encouraging the president uh, to encourage Mike Pence to uh, overturn or uh, stall the electoral count vote. So that that was a new development. Uh, I don't think that the final report and some of the final action from the committee will come until September. Yeah, Jenny Thomas's uh, potential testimony. Obviously, it raises questions about whether there was a tie to the Supreme Court, which could have at some point listened to arguments in those cases if they were trying to push it to the Supreme Court where they knew they had a majority uh, and they could potentially overturn an election there. Right. Uh, All sorts of wrinkles related to Ginny Thomas there and, and dragging the Supreme Court into this case at a time when the Supreme Court's got an awful lot of other things on its plate. But I, I saw that she told a conservative newspaper that she would be eager to talk to the committee and clarify and clean up some uh, misperceptions. So uh, perhaps she will uh, go in and talk to them without much fuss. But I think we have to see see what goes on there. Yeah, it's for me, it's still hard to believe all of this is reality and not some Hollywood film on the big screen, because if it wasn't real, it sure sounds like an incredible script or a John Grisham novel. But this is real life, right? This is something like John Grisham would write. It's 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 pretty uh, amazing to watch the hearings and the videos of what was going on and to, uh, you know, here, bring out Mike Pence and, uh, you know, with the gallows out there uh, in front of the Capitol, it, 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 it still boggles the mind, especially for uh, those of us who, you know, covered Washington, been around the government for a long time. It just, it's just so out of what we have come to expect. Carl Hulse, New York Times. Really appreciate your time, your insight, your experience, and we'll keep following your coverage of these hearings. Thank you, Carl. I appreciate it. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. 
Don't forget that you can hear us on Sirius XM POTUS channel 124 every Saturday. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.